for me, it was a cool experience where the first time I really had a, a something come full circle in my um, music journey. And, um, you know, this took place maybe over 10 years ago, maybe 12 or 11 years ago. But it was an instance where I unexpectedly met a drummer that I was a big fan of. He just happened to be at one of my gigs, and uh, I didn't recognize him, but uh, but I'll tell the story. So this was probably 2004 or 2005. I was playing a Sunday night jazz gig in Dover, New Hampshire at this place called the Barley Pub, which was um, a great venue. Um, a lot of my friends and I played at, and the Sunday nights were a pretty relaxed gig. You know, we'd play 8 to 11. Uh, sometimes there'd be a, a good crowd, sometimes there wouldn't. You know, it really depend on... Um, you know, if the Patriots were playing or something like that. And uh, this particular night happened to be one of those weeks where there there really wasn't anyone there. But regardless, we would always just have a good time. I mean, it was at least a good hang and a good chance to play music with some friends. But I remember this night, you know, we took our set break and we were going to play our last set. And I remember seeing literally just two people sitting um, at the tables in front of the band. Um, maybe less than a handful of people at the bar that Weren't, weren't really paying attention to uh, the music. So, you know, we were about to start our set and play for two people, one of which was a friend of uh, our sax player, and the other guy was just uh, a guy older than me that I didn't seem to recognize, but he seemed uh, pretty eager to hear some music. So, you know, we played our set, and I'd always try to make the best of it, and, uh, you know, even if there's two people there, I'm still gonna play my best and enjoy that I'm, I'm doing, a, doing a gig. So, you know, we play our set, slow night. Um, afterwards, you know, my, my sax player friend goes to talk to his, his buddy and uh, the other guy that was sitting in the audience um, came up to me and started talking to me and, you know, right off the bat, he said he really enjoyed our music and enjoyed listening to my drumming and um, started asking me about my drum set. So I, I figured, okay, this guy must be a drummer too. So we, we get to talking and, um, you know, he's asking me about uh, some of my favorite drummers and um, he mentions that he uh, used to play professionally in a rock band and uh, he stopped playing for a bit, but now he's, he's just getting back into it and he really would like to learn some jazz and said that I seem like the kind of drummer that reads music and must give lessons, so um, he was asking if I teach and saying we should get together sometime. You know, I started asking him about, you know, what kind of stuff he liked listening to, and we kind of just, you know, when drummers meet each other, we could just talk all night about that kind of stuff. You know, eventually I asked him about, like, what got him back into playing and, and what was his band like and said oh you know we were an alternative rock band we used to play around a bit it's like oh around you know around the seacoast he's like eh, kind of everywhere so <laughs> eventually I just asked him well oh cool what was your band and he said uh, oh just a rock band we were called Dinosaur Junior 
when he said that, I almost didn't believe him because I saw them at Lollapalooza in 1993 when I was in high school. There's probably, you know, 30,000 people there. You know, I, uh, I was a big fan. I had uh, a lot of their albums and even had the t-shirts and all that. So I, I didn't tell him that because I didn't want to <laughs> turn into a fan right away. But I said, um, you know, I'm actually a big fan of you guys. That's crazy. I almost didn't believe him, though, because he introduced himself as Patrick Murphy, and I didn't quite recognize the name. And I was just thinking, you know, what are you doing in Dover on a Sunday night? That was PMAC drum instructor Mike Walsh telling the story of one of those gigs that we all have with only a few people in the audience, this time on a Sunday night at the Barley Pub, and how one of those audience members turned out to be the drummer for Dinosaur Jr. My name is Russ Grazier, and I'd like to welcome you to Sound and Color, the PMAC podcast. In today's edition of the podcast, we have a very special guest, jazz icon, Brad Terry. Brad is a jazz clarinetist, but he's also well known as a jazz whistler. And we even recorded him whistling a little bit of music. So make sure you uh, stay tuned to hear that as well. We talked about how Brad got his start on the clarinet and about the Seacoast Jazz Society's Jazz Appreciation Project, for which Brad visited PMAC recently. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Today, I'd like to welcome jazz clarinetist Brad Terry to the PMAC podcast, Sound and Color. Thank you for coming today and speaking with us, Brad. Well, it's wonderful to be here. I'm, uh, I'm, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, ever since Terry, uh, Terry McDonald actually talked to me about uh, six months ago. I think it's the long time we've been hearing about this. Place. Well, it's interesting. Terry, uh, a local jazz drummer, uh, retired. Um, is very active with the Seacoast Jazz Society, which I'm yeah. also very active with. And Terry started this idea that um, we need to foster uh, interest in jazz and the mm -hmm. Seacoast even further than just having people come out to hear a concert. Yeah. So Terry came up with this idea of having people come a couple hours before the concert and meet the artists and hear the artist play a little bit, and then be able to ask questions, a little interactive uh, session that he calls the Seacoast Jazz Appreciation Project. And mm -hmm. that's actually what you're here to do at PMAC today. That's, uh, that's as I understand it, that's what I'm here for. That's yeah, wonderful. exactly. That's wonderful. Exactly. It's great because I'm, I'm uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really amazing art form. And uh, old, old Doc Severinsen, mm -hmm. he once said that uh, uh, jazz and Indian beadwork are the only two truly American art forms, <laughs> and we better hang on to it because uh, uh, it's you know we we got to get young people playing it and listening to it and understanding it. Well, you know that's a big part of what we do here at PMAC. We have an extensive jazz education program. Mm -hmm. I know you know some of our jazz instructors on the faculty, like Brian Kilo. We had talked mm -hmm. about. I've earlier. worked with him. Over, I mean, played with him over. I know, on and off for the last 10 years. Anyway. Yes, yeah. Yeah, 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 such a fabulous wonderful, jazz guitarist. Wonderful and, player, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. a wonderful person. And Brian is among uh, more than a dozen jazz musicians that we have mm -hmm. on faculty here at PMAC that work with young people and adults on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And one of our goals here at the school is to grow 
uh, the next generation of jazz artists. Got to do it. Got to do it. Yeah, yeah, and and sometimes the teachers will joke that you know we're we're preparing people to take our gigs from us, but that's what we need to do, and that you know, and 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 we're starting to see that we've had some graduates from the school here go on yeah. and start to play out professionally, and it's a lot of fun and very exciting to see that happen. Well, I know, and I've I've been uh, I was involved way 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 back with the uh, main jazz camp. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> and then I've been since 1991. I've made 20 trips to Poland. Oh, tell us a little bit about that. So, so what first got you traveling overseas to well, Poland? Well, actually, there was a, a, a one of our instructors at jazz camp, uh, a fellow by the name of Izzy Rudnick. Uh, was he was a last minute replacement for a trombone player that couldn't make it? Uh-huh. And he told me that he had kids in in junior high school in Poland playing jazz. And pretty much I didn't believe him. So I bought a ticket to go see for myself and fell in love with it. And I've been back and forth ever since. And, oh, that's wonderful. And, and also getting kids um, involved with doing, doing workshops. Mm-hmm. There's an organization. It must it'd be fun to see if we could link it up somehow. There's an organization in Poland called the Little Academy of Jazz. Uh-huh. And uh, they've been in existence for 30 years. Okay, and the Little Academy do, of Jazz. Yeah, they put, when they put somebody like me and my piano player, Joachim Menzel, into a school to do a 45-minute presentation to mm-hmm. junior high school kids. And we talk about improvisation and uh, jazz and, and play for them and so forth. And I couldn't believe I was over there in last June, and it was their 30th anniversary. And it's the 20th year that I've been involved with it. Wow. In 30 years, they have gotten jazz programs to 40,000 students that's remarkable and i was amazed because they told me that yakim and i over our 20-year association with them have seen about ten thousand kids that's fantastic it's pretty exciting that's that's a legacy i mean that's a yeah, big yeah. impact a big and i was also I, I was um uh jamie abersold yes uh he's a he's an almost militant anti-smoker really i would say he is a militant <laughs> anti-smoker and uh he helped us um we uh had t-shirts made with my jazz logo on the front and the international no smoking on the on the, on the arms, and uh, we gave away four thousand t-shirts over a period of twenty years. That's amazing to kids all over Poland. So I'd like to think maybe we helped. If if ten kids decided not to smoke, it was worth it. That's fabulous. Yeah, well, I always say the only smoking allowed is during your solo, <laughs> with meaning not a cigarette, meaning you're you're playing. Yeah. <laughs> For those who don't get that little jazz, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, little bit of yeah. Uh, well, if you if you've heard smoking at the half note with West yes. Montgomery, then they you know, then you know what that means. You know what that means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so tell us a little bit. You know, one of the things that I always like to talk about when we have a visiting artist here at PMAC, because we work with so many kids who are just starting out trying music for the first time. How did you first get started with music? What what was your first interaction with the clarinet or with music? My first interaction with music um, was as a very small child. My mother played all the great tunes of the twenties and thirties on the piano. Nice. And I was there. Were there was a, a couple of blankets and a pillow underneath the piano at home, and I went to sleep there every night. Uh-huh. And uh, Time Life Books came out with a thing called the Hundred Greatest Hits of the Twenties and Thirties, and without ever cracking a book, I know about ninety-eight of them. That's amazing. And um, then the then my mother also was not shy about talking to people, and um, she talked to our neighbor, who happened to be the 
pretty good clarinet player, Mr. Benny Goodman. So you were neighbors with Benny Goodman when you were a child. Very good. And, it's, and uh, she, now is this in New York? This is in Stanford, Connecticut. In, in Connecticut, yeah. okay. And she said, what do I do? I've got this this uh, 13-year-old who doesn't do homework, and he doesn't do homework, and he doesn't do anything except play the re- recorder by ear and uh-huh. won't go to school. And Benny said, get him a clarinet. <laughs> of course. And um, so I got three free lessons with the clarinet. And From I was, Benny? No. Well, oh. later on, I had some lessons with him. Which, oh, excellent. Which were non-productive because he wanted me to jump through hoops I couldn't even imagine. Yep. And yep. he was not... A very good teacher, but he was a, a, a friend. I mean, yeah. He was very nice with me, but uh, not a good teacher. Mm-hmm. But I started off with my three free lessons, and um, and then it's sort of moving quite a bit ahead. When I was 58 years old, uh-huh. I was diagnosed with major league ADD. Okay. I had no idea that that's why I couldn't learn how to read, or I couldn't learn how to spell, or I couldn't do uh-huh. a whole lot of other things in yeah. school, including not being able to read music. Yeah. And... Um, so the only solution was I had to learn how I had to learn tunes if I wanted to play I had to learn them, mm-hmm. and uh, so and, that's and now learn them by ear, yeah, completely by ear, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I mean, if I play a if I if Stan Getz played a ballad and there's a couple of wrong notes in it, uh, that's the way I'm playing it because that's the way he played it. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. Got it. <laughs> you know, and and uh, uh, I, I remember this is quite a while ago with one of the uh, real books. I was playing somewhere with some college kids. And they were playing Waltz for Debbie. Yep. And the real book had a whole, I don't know, two, three measures missing. Yeah. Just playing yeah. not there. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, and they gave me, I, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's, you're not, the messes, you know, they're missing mess, measures here. I can't talk. Uh-huh. And um, they argued with me. And I said, well, you know, I learned it from listening to Bill Evans played on the piano. I, right. I think he might know what it's all about. <laughs> That's <you know>? right. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, and, and I'm completely entirely ear player. I uh-huh. I can only play what I can hear in my head ahead of time. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's a lot. And Yeah, and then an uh, analogy that, that I think makes sense, uh, you get some little five-year-old person who mm-hmm. speaks in sentences. He can't read the words, can't yep. spell the words, he doesn't know anything about grammar, but he can talk to you. And simply put, I play music the way a five-year-old talks. I don't need to know the name of the note or the mode or the scale or the. I don't need any of that information, any more than the kid talking at five years old needs to how to spell all those words. Well, I I get the impression from having only known you for a very short period of time right now that you approach. Um, you know, music and life with the wide eyes of a five-year-old in a lot of ways too, which is actually a, a wonderful yeah, trait. Yeah. Well, and that's why, uh, and I, I don't know if Peter's ever going to hear this. He, he'll be embarrassed. But playing with Peter is such fun because he's 25 or six years and old. And he's your guitar player. He's my guitar player. And he's, um, we're playing tunes that I've known for 60 years, and he's hearing them for the first time. Yeah. He's learning them off my master list. So we play a tune that... And all of a sudden, he's throwing all these wonderful, very different chords and ideas and mm-hmm. things to me. And I say, oh, God, why didn't I think of that chord 40 years ago? Where have <laughs> I been? Right. You know. So he keeps throwing curveballs at me. And I never know what we're going to do or where it's going to happen. It's, uh-huh. just, it's like sitting on the edge of your chair all the time. Yeah. And so there's a great sense of spontaneity oh, yeah, in your music. Yeah, yeah, completely. Fabulous. And, and uh, when you're doing, uh, my favorite kind of playing is duo. Mm-hmm. It's because it's, it's. I mean, I'm not a good New Year's Eve party person. I like one-on-one conversations. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think I'm coming up sort of with an idea that it's to really make it work. It's a 60-40 relationship, 60% listening, 
And if both people are listening at 60%, what happens in the middle is absolute magic. Yeah. 50-50 is relatively easy. But 60-40 is rare, and it happens when I play with people. Well, I tell you, I, I went to see Wayne Shorter play about two years ago. Oh, yeah. And they do now a two-hour, completely free improvised set with his band. And he, he was he, he spent at least 60, probably more than 60% of the set listening to the other musicians. It's not about him getting up there in front and playing and playing and playing. Yeah, yeah. And there was this remarkable moment in the middle of the set where he's listening, he's listening, listening. He takes his tenor sax off of his strap. He picks up his soprano. He walks up to the front of the stage, puts the soprano in his mouth. He listens for three minutes, takes the soprano out of the mouth, puts it on the stand, picks up the tenor, starts playing. He never played the soprano once. <laughs> he listened the whole time holding the instrument yeah. and then went picked yeah, up the instrument yeah. he had in the first place and yeah. listened. And it just epitomized this idea of being a part of the conversation, being a part of the music and understanding what's going on right. and not this idea of soloist and accompanist, but this idea of ensemble. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I hear that already in hearing you warm up today in your group. Well, and, and, and uh, I mean, I do unusual things. If, uh, this, this quartet is, is never played before. Tonight. Okay. I mean, Vaughn, Vaughn and Peter and I have played a couple of times. But at you've Vaughn's got Terry house. McDonald playing drums. Terry's never played. And with, he's never played with this particular combination. Yeah, he's met Peter once five yep. years ago or something. Yep. Yeah. And um, what I like to do, um, and I'm going to spring all kinds of stuff on them. They don't know us yet. <laughs> um, but I want to. I want to break it up into little individual things. I want yep. Harry. I want, for instance, I want Terry McDonald to do something just with Peter. Yes. And yeah. maybe Vaughn do something just with me, and and move things around, and have different uh, different combinations, and uh, because they are all listeners. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it should be pretty good it's fun. Be exciting. And we have no I, idea what's going to happen, which makes it exciting and, and yeah. more fun. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I have a question I ask a lot of people who come through here um, because we're an educational institution. Um, I like to ask musicians, especially established musicians, um, if they have any advice they would give a young person who's considering embarking on a path of music as a life, as a career, going to school for something like that. Is there any advice that you wish you had had when you were younger or any advice that you would give now to a young person that's beginning that path? Uh, yeah, I think, I think for, for a couple of things, um, when, I, when I was 16 or 17, I was a Benny Goodman clone. Memorized all his solos, note for note. I played exactly the way he played. Uh, it was good for my technique, but it did nothing for my brain because I was just being a copycat. And so early on, I literally gave away all my Goodman records and started listening to everything except clarinet players. Now, I can recognize Buddy DeFranco in four measures, but I've never tried to cop a solo. I've listened much more to people like Stan Getz and, and uh, Bill Evans, I think, is probably musically the most important influence on me because I sort of instinctively hear those kind of harmonies. That's what I, when I'm playing, that's what I want to hear. Um, Cannonball Adderley said that when, when Bill Evans played a tune, it became the definitive way to play the tune. I sort of feel that way. Um, and so I, I, uh, I think, if nothing else, I have a style and a sound that's uniquely mine. I don't sound like any other clarinet player. I don't know if it's any good or not, but at least it's me. And um, I don't try to play loud and high. And uh, I mean, I would years ago I was doing all kinds of bebop stuff, a million notes in the top register. I I, I just want to play one right one mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so the advice for a young student would be to well, listen, 
listen 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 and uh and the other thing is learn tunes learn tunes learn tunes yeah because and i know there's some different thoughts about that but if you're faced with a, a you know it's a tune you haven't heard there's a bunch of chord changes on the lead sheet what do i do oh my god i don't know what to do well the guy who wrote the tune had a pretty good idea what to do yeah so that's a good place to start excellent and learn those melodies and um, and then you can embellish the melody, and you've got some foundation of where it's going to go uh, as a starting place. And uh, so that's I recommend I recommend anybody wanting to be a jazz player at this point to, to learn a tune a week. Yeah. And so that's fifty. Give you two weeks off for Christmas. That's fifty tunes, 50 a, tunes year. a year. In in ten years. Yeah. You know that's a pretty good list. I've been, I've actually been doing a little bit of that. Yeah, you know, yeah. the tune I'm working on this week that I've, for some reason, had never come across before mm. is uh, Charlie Parker's segment. Oh, I don't know. It's that. also called Tune X. No. You oh, got I'll me. I'll have to, I'll have to, I'll have to show it to you. I hadn't come across this one either, but yeah. uh, one of the other faculty members yeah. here, uh, Eric Claxton and his brother Chris Claxton, mm -hmm. sax player and a trumpet player, uh, suggested it for an upcoming concert that we're doing. So mm -hmm. I pulled it out mm -hmm. and started looking at it. Mm -hmm. And it's a fascinating minor bebop tune. In, in Based on blues or something? or is it blues I think it's or? a contrafact. I think it's a partial contrafact. It's got this strange rhythm changes bridge that's not exactly rhythms changes. Yeah. Yeah. It's slightly okay. different. Okay. You know how fond he was of the rhythm changes, yeah. you know, Parker. So He probably wrote... 200 tunes. yeah yeah exactly so <laughs> so it's one of those but um i i haven't quite figured it out yet i just started about two days ago uh -huh. it's my tune of the uh -huh. week as uh -huh. i said so um i'm working my way through it i'll yeah. play a little tonight after you're gone and yeah. work on it some more but oh, great. um great. now what do you play i'm a sax player a i'm sax a saxophonist player? Oh, okay. yeah and interestingly okay. enough i'm trained as a classical saxophonist i studied with kenneth radnowski in boston oh, wow. at boston conservatory and didn't start playing jazz until my 30s oh, wow. and didn't go through a program like Berkeley or something like that, mm -hmm. but instead kind of immersed myself playing with other people. Yeah. So I was in a teaching situation and found myself uh, after hours with other teachers mm -hmm. who played jazz saying, let's get to teach me how to do this. And mm -hmm. we would jam all night after mm -hmm. teaching all day and, um, and then got involved in a group and slowly learned the repertoire. And then I, I actually, you know, people sometimes find this strange, but I, I actually took lessons here with some of the jazz faculty here. Mm -hmm. So Matt Langley, you might know Matt. I know of him. Yeah. yeah I, great. I, I've met him a couple of Great years. jazz saxophonist. Yeah. So I took some lessons with Matt yeah. and, and it went a long way to introducing me to different ways of thinking about the saxophone mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but because of my strong classical background i sound different than a lot of other jazz yeah. saxophonists yeah and yeah. it creates my own unique sound like you were talking about I, before. i'd love to hear it you yeah. got your horn with oh, you yeah. we should play we'll play something come play, play a tune with us yeah. tonight yeah that would be that, that, be that would be fun yeah sure um i have one last question for yeah. you um and i'm asking this because i'm always fascinated by uh, coming in contact with people who've come in contact with or played with very well-known musicians. Mm -hmm. And on your resume, it says that you played with Dizzy Gillespie. I did. Tell us about that. Well, we got a National Endowment grant uh, when I was playing with uh, Steve Grover, the drummer, and we, we had a thing called the Friends of Jazz. We were doing school programs. And we got through the National Endowment. We got Dizzy to come up to Maine and um, spend a week with us oh, wow. touring schools. We did a concert at Merrill Hall with uh, the, the Colby Big Band. And um, and he was uh, he was staying at a hotel, but he was during the day he was with us up at my place up in Bodenham, and uh, one of the sweetest, nicest guys in the world. I believe that. Yeah. And um, there's a story. Uh, I've written a book. I might as well plug that. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> in it is a story. Um, he told me anytime I came to New York, give him a call. 
Uh-huh. And I'd called him, and um, he was playing at the uh, Village Gate. Uh-huh. And I, he told me to come in, and I, he was, he, I found him down in the bowels of this place in his African robes, and he said, we're playing Cuban music. I said, I don't know anything about Cuban music, and you know, and he said, oh, there's nothing to it. You're just vamping, vamping B flat, and the next one's in F, and don't worry about it. And so, sure enough, we did that, and you know, and there was about a, ten drummers. And when Dizzy started playing, he got very, very excited. All the drummers mm-hmm. going crazy. And uh, he looked over uh, at me, and he started one of these lines where he starts way up in the stratosphere, this amazing jazz line. One of these things coming down. And in the middle, he stopped. And he looked at me and with a sort of a gleam in his eye, and he said, where the is one? <laughs> and then kept right on playing. <laughs> <laughs> one of the high points of my entire life. That's awesome. It was one of, he was just just the nicest nicest guy in the world. Just uh-huh. a lovely, lovely guy. Uh-huh. And um, and that was and then I had a, a, a good experience with the piano player Roger Kellaway, mm-hmm. who I've known for a long time. I did a um, I recorded a tune with him uh, when he was playing duos with Red Mitchell. Oh, wonderful! There's a thing. It's a an album called Fifty Fifty. Uh-huh. And I did a whistling track on that with that. So so now you need to do an album called 6040. 60 That's yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. All there right. There we go. All I right. got your next album title for you. All right. All right. Well, that's good. And and I've got um I mean I I was a ringer with a band out of Yale University. Uh-huh. And uh, I think I got the gig because I had a good station wagon. I don't think it was my clarinet. <laughs> never darkened the door as a student. And we uh, we got uh, the idea of getting doubling up on instruments the way the old Eddie Condon's band used mm-hmm. to have two trumpets, two trombones. I was the driver, and I was dispatched to 125th Street, and I picked up Buddy Tate, Dickie Wells, Rex Stewart, Buck Clayton, and Joe Jones. Wow! And we piled them all into my station wagon, went up and played the session in New Haven. Oh wow! We did a couple of them, and after the third one, Buddy. And this is, honestly, this is a true story. He, I was, I had to have been 18 or 19 because uh-huh. I was driving in New York. Yep. And he told me to double park my car in front of the celebrity club on 125th Street. Uh-huh. Leave the keys in the ignition, double park your car. And I wasn't, in that neighborhood, being who I was, I wasn't going to argue with anybody. Yep, yep. And we went down to the, to the bottom of the celebrity club. There were probably two, 300 people in there. And he put me on the van stand. And I was, one side of me was Buck Clayton and the other side was Buddy Tate. Wow. And all the tunes were sort of, um, I got rhythm, uh, honeysuckle rose, blues oriented. So my ear was good enough to mm-hmm. figure out how to play solos over whatever they were. And um, Buddy took me around afterwards. There were these little organ trio places on the corner mm-hmm. with a, with a you know, a tenor player and a Hammond organ and a guy with a snare and a hi hat. Yep. And he pushed me into these plays and made me play. That's how you learn. And. Um, uh, and I don't know how many nights I spent on the on the kitchen floor in his apartment in a sleeping bag. Wow. And if if it hadn't been for Buddy Tate, I don't think I ever would have gotten beyond being a Dixieland weekend Dixieland player. Never uh-huh. would have gone anywhere with it without his push. What a great story. And that's I owe it all to him. Wonderful. And he was he again was one of the sweetest guys in the wonderful. world. Very wonderful, wonderful guy. Well, thank you for coming and uh, spending a little time with us. It's I'm good delighted. To get to know you. I'm delighted. And we're looking forward to this afternoon's Seacoast Jazz Appreciation okay. Project and tonight's okay. concert here at PMAC. And uh, we hope to have you back again in the near future. Well, I will certainly hope to 
be back again in the near future. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been, I'm looking forward to the next couple of hours. I'll tell you, it's going to be fun. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to Sound and Color, the PMAC podcast. I'm Russ Grazier, your host. The music on today's podcast was James Brown by Mother Superior and the Sliding Royales, featuring Mike Walsh on the drums. And of course, that was Mike Walsh telling the story at the beginning of the podcast. And Brad Terry, thank you very much, Brad, for joining us for this conversation today. Sound and Color is produced by Pip Clues with executive producer Jennifer Minicucci. It is a production of the Portsmouth Music and Arts Center, a nonprofit community music and visual arts school located in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again at the next episode.